You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Lord Jesus, we're grateful that you brought us together today, and we're thankful that you continue to minister to us by your word and your spirit. And on this Pentecost Sunday, we do ask that you would, as you promised, O Lord, uh, give us your spirit to lead us into all truth, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, um, lots to cover. Um, Okay, Uh, lots to cover today. We're doing the, uh, kind of wrapping up the fifth commandment, moving into the sixth. Can I do a book commercial one more time? Um, uh, Here's a few book commercials for you. Uh, I mentioned to you already. What? I don't know if I am recording. I don't know. Am I? Yeah. Is this is this mic too hot? Okay. Um, the first one is I've mentioned the story. But Gilbert Mylander, Thy Will Be Done. I, I sort of I mentioned that one to you. Um, we'll talk a little bit about today about. We're going to move into it next week as well. Um, sexuality in the body. Uh, this is this is one of those areas where we have a lot to in- learn and engage from our Roman Catholic friends. I- I've been sort of buried in um, Evangelium Vitae or the Gospel of Life, which was an encyclical that came out from John Paul II, I think, in the eighties. Um, it is it is well worth your time to engage this um, book here. Another Catholic moral theologian. And, and for all the parents and grandparents in the room, can I sort of highly recommend this book here by Nancy Piercy uh, called Love Thy Body. Um, this, is, this is an outstanding book, um, sort of engaging where, where we sort of are in our cultural moment in light of sort of Christian moral theology and philosophy even gets into some of the gender issues that are, that are really sort of rampant today as well. And I think provide, might provide you with some grammar for how to think through these things in our, in our moment. So I, I mentioned that one to you. And then if you want a, a really sort of deep dive into the Ten Commandments, um, I, I commend to you um, Patrick Miller's book on the Ten Commandments. Uh, this is, you can see it's thick, you know, so reader beware. Um, but this might be this might be worth your time, too. Okay, uh, so with all that said, I want I want to go back a little bit to the fifth commandment, and it's interesting. I've got I've got to get my mind a little bit more around these things, but it's interesting to me that you've got this um, collection as you move from the the first table of the law. We think about that in terms of the vertical axis of loving God into the second table of the law, which is the horizontal axis of, your, of loving your neighbor, that we have this triad that comes together right out of the gate. Honor your father and your mother. Um, you shall not murder. And then you shall not commit adultery. I mean, you've got something here all wrapped up in the ways in which God links together um, family, uh, human life, um, and sexuality, all those things. And, the, and the, these are the, all the issues, by the way, that you hope no one brings up at Thanksgiving. Like you just you don't don't do this then. Um, but they sit so much, I think, on top of 
the issues that are so much a part of our current discourse. And as Christians, as we live in the earthly city, we've got to think about these things, try to get our minds around them in a way. And because we need a grammar, um, a way of speaking about it to ourselves internally and individually and to our neighbors um, that are, that's, and these are the terms that keep coming to my mind, that are both courageous um, and um, loving at the same time. I and mean, that's the thing. You want to bring together sort of courage and, and love. These, these necessary, the one to the other. So back to um, honor your father and your mother. Um, and I had four things that I wanted to talk about last week and just had to kind of shotgun off the last two, but I want to put the car in reverse. One, one of the things about this honoring your father and your mother, which focuses again on familial relations that I think is so important, is the fact that being a part of a family, we all know this, brings to us um, certain, and I'm, I'm going I'm I'm to frame this positively, a certain kind of limitation on our opportunities and possibilities. The, the more relationally committed and complex our lives become, um, the more limitations that are put on our future opportunities. Uh, this is one of the, re and by the way, a, a pretty good speech on this, I thought, um, sitting right on top of this issue was D David, David Brooks, I don't know, it might have been three, four, five years ago, did a commencement speech at one of the big name schools in the Northeast. And basically he looked out of the audience and he said, Here, here's the trouble with you people in your generation. Um, you, 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 you live into the hope of endless possibilities, which keeps you from wanting to commit yourself to the stability of a long-term relationship because you want your future an open checkbook. And he told them, he said, and here's, here's the flip side of that. The flip side is you, you're, you're, you're limiting yourself in terms of what it really means to be human by keeping that kind of familial or relational commitment at bay. And we've seen this, right? Even, what's the average age of marriage these days? I mean, I think we're just seeing this sort of move older and older. What's the average age now? 45, 46? Oh, I don't think that's it. But, but it's older than it used to be. Um, and, 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 and it's understandable, right? I mean, we, we think of our freedom. This is very much sitting on, on our moment. We think of our freedom in terms of our own individuality, autonomous individuality, and we probably think of our social and governmental networks as there, in some sense, they exist for the support of my individual autonomy. That, that's why they exist. And here you have this sort of built into the very Christian fabric of what it means to relate to God and to humanity, um, this call to enter into the, the, the positive burdens of being um, linked and, and to, to, um, uh, in, in familial relations. So think, think about some of these dynamics. In our families, we have a claim on each other and our families. Um, I, I used to shy away from this language because I just I didn't like it when I was a kid. Um, it's funny how that works, isn't it? Where you, you reject certain things that your parents did for a while, and then you're like, I'm going to give that a go. You know, after a little bit later, um, I, I can remember my own parents saying to me with some regularity, um, remember, you represent the Lord and our family. I just thought that was I just didn't like it. There's something didn't smell right about it. Um, 
And, uh, and now I'm telling my eldest as he goes out to wherever, like, remember, you represent your Lord and our family. All right. Because why? I mean, the sense is we have a claim on each other. We're, it's not just us out there. We, we represent our, our families. Um, there's nothing that we do as individuals that, re, that remains isolated from the whole and we so badly want it to be that way. We want to be, and, and this is so much, you know, our fragmented m- m- moment. Modernism and madness have become sort of flip sides of the same coin where we're, we're, we're divided internally because we so badly want our sole individuality and autonomy. And yet we also know that our moment is plagued uh, by a deep sense of loneliness um, I think you see this, uh, and I, I, I don't want to lean into this because I'm, I'm, I want to pursue this some more, but a fascinating public persona to follow in some of this is Anthony Bourdain. That, that, that's an interesting story, I think. Um, so Bourdain, who was such an honest um, uh, documentary sort of travel film guy, so you, some of he's still on, um, sort of linking into cultures and people in ways that were kind of um, un... Uh, um, uh, deeply honest, and he's just a fascinating guy, and yet so detached in a way that the, the sort of fracture of loneliness that, that weighed him down. We, we live in that. So we're, you, this is a moment, and I think about this with, with respect to young people especially, um, where young people so badly want their individuality, their autonomy, and their freedom, and yet they're also sort of beholden to this overarching malaise in our moment of deep loneliness, deep interconnectivity in our sort of virtual world, and yet deep loneliness and an internal sort of division in the psyche about what it means to really be human. And this is what Jesus, I mean, it's like Jesus keeps walking into the room. Come, come in and say, if you want to find yourself, lose yourself. You don't find yourself by establishing your autonomy. You find yourself by losing yourself in another. And it's our families. That and by the way, this is whether you're single or not. Because if you're single, you're still kind of in a family. Um, it's in your families, which we don't get to choose. This, I'm going to get to this in a second. We don't get to really choose. You get to choose your spouse, um, but you don't get to choose what your kids are going to be like, and you certainly don't get to choose your mom and your dad, and you don't get to choose your spouse's mom and dad. I mean, these things are you know all messy. Um, and yet it's in that context of that microcosm, honor your father and your mother, where we begin to see what it is to find your true self by losing yourself in the other. That's the, that's the call here. That's the, that's the fabric of what we're, of what we're dealing with. Um, and so I, th- I think about this even in terms of how we speak to ourselves um, in relationship to the other. Um, and and here, here's an example of this, um, and I was I was kind of raised this way too, so I'm taking a little shot at my own upbringing. But um, the the emphasis within, say, the the conservative realm of the church with young people is make sure you marry the right person, right? Um, marry the right kind of person. Which, by the way, that's let me, let me just go and say that's important. Um, but, uh, you know, but, we, but we, we use that kind of language. And what, what do we tend to think with that? Well, if you can, if you can go through this checklist um, 
and of, uh, of what you want in a spouse, and I don't think all this is bad, but hang with me, what you want in a spouse, then what you're going to basically do is mitigate trouble. There's some truth to that. Um, but what's, the, what's underlying so much of this? I've been convicted of this even as a father with my own kids. What's underlying all of this? Well, that other person is going to exist kind of solely for me. That, that, that's, the, that's what's fueling that. And so even in our, in our and again, I, the genlets are a mess, so don't take that. But even in our own home, I mean, I find ourselves, Naomi and I do, with our kids saying things like this now. Um, look to marry a godly woman um, who loves the Lord, the kind of woman that you would, this is with our boys, the kind of woman that you would want to rear your children in the faith and hand that over to them, the kind of woman that's going to pray and be virtuous. I mean, we even throw the Proverbs 31 thing, favor is deceitful, beauty is vain, but a woman that fears the Lord, she will be praised. I mean, we're happy to say that's in the Bible. They can't take it out. Now, I know Proverbs 31 has been abused a lot, but we can't take it out. And yet we will quickly follow that with, and, and, and we're praying that you'll be the kind of man that that woman would want. See, that's the other part that we don't, it's like, well, you find the right kind of woman. Well, you know, how about you be the right kind of man? Like, we want you to be that, the kind of man that the woman that we're praying for, for your future, that she would look at you and say, I'll, I'll, I'll deal with that. All right, I'll take that. Um, that's what that's what we're praying. So I think this is that that sense of family and interrelationship where we where we find what's really near the heart of a Christian ethic at large. That is life and freedom is found in the divestiture of the self and the giving of yourself to the other. That's where it's found. And that and we're going to talk about this next week. Because we're gonna, uh, there's gonna be three of you here. Um, I'm joking, but next week we're gonna, next week is thou shalt not commit adultery. So we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna, go, we're gonna lean in on it. So break, buckle up. Um, but one of the powerful things about this linking together of honor your father and mother, um, honor life, do not commit murder, and um, uh, do, do not commit adultery, is this sense that um, marriages. These kinds of relationships demand a covenantal structure. They demand to enter into a, co- not a contract. You're entering into a relational covenant that you are giving yourself to the other until death do you part, no matter what the future might hold. That is, but we had a deep talk about this with some of our boys the other day. That is scary. B.B. Um, Warfield, who taught theology at Princeton, late 19th, early 20th century. Um, his works are still read widely within the Reformed theological world. B.B. Warfield goes on his honeymoon. His wa- so- something happens. There was a lightning strike. Something happened that debilitated his wife on their honeymoon for her life. And the story is told that Warfield was never away from home more than two hours in Princeton. He'd go and lecture, he'd maybe do some writing, he'd go home and have to check in on his wife. Um, you, you do not know what the future holds when you say, till death do us part. You don't know. That's the, that's the fear side of this. But the freedom side of it is, but in the, in the relinquishing of my own autonomy or the relinquishing of my idea that my spouse exists for my pleasure. When that, and here's the craziness of it all. 
That's where pleasure's found. It's, it's like this big, almost cosmic comedy that's going on. That's where real pleasure's found. Not in the holding on to things. That just makes us miserable. Um, you know what it's like when you, I mean, think about addictions. Addictions are built off of the back of pushing into something more and more to offer us what we're really after. And you've got to go deeper and deeper because it never, ever gets you there. It's got to be more and more. And here's, here's honor your father and your mother, which links into finding real joy um, for the other. This is a big antidote for our self-love. Let me say one other thing here about this fifth commandment. Um, children are a heritage from the Lord. They are God's gift to us. I mean, think about the ways in which the scriptures speak about children. Um, they are not a product of our wills. Uh, we don't get to send them back to Amazon.com. Right? Um, have you done this? My wife and I just did this the other day. That is so easy, by the way. Gosh. Um, go to the you know, UPS store and drop it off. You know what it says on it? Reason, reason for return with your children. Not quite what I wanted. Right? <laughs> um, we accept them. Uh, we grow with them and in a way that's a kind of um, adventure and nurturing of the Lord. We learn by God's grace to live honestly before them and point them toward their greater good. One of the most beautiful scenes, I want to give you two scripture passages with this. One of the most beautiful scenes in the Bible is found in Ruth chapter 2. Ruth, by the way, is a fantastic uh, biblical novella. I mean, it is short. Each chapter, I mean, whoever wrote Ruth... Um, uh, did an incredible job on the artistry side. And not all of the, I mean, I teach this for a living, not all the Bible in its linguistic form we can describe as beautiful. I mean, Hebrew is like getting shot at with a, you know, a machine gun of sounds. It's not all beautiful. But Ruth is a beautiful book. Each chapter, a scene within the developing plot. In Ruth chapter 1, you've got these just chaos after chaos following Naomi who no longer has any offspring. And here you have a, a beautiful description of honor your father and your mother. When Ruth, and here's Orpah, she's already gone back, and no one should blame Orpah for that. She's gone back to her sort of patriarchal, safe setting. Smart. She's smart. Go do that. But here's Ruth, who looks at her mother-in-law and says, wherever you go, I'm going to go. Whoever your people are, they're going to be my people. And whoever your God is, is going to be my God. I mean, that is a beautiful description of honor your father and mother. I was in a class at Beeson years ago, and it just dawned on me, like in the world that Naomi and I grew up in, that, that verse was read at a lot of weddings. Any of you familiar with that verse being read at weddings? I mean, it's taken me years to realize that's, that's like between a daughter in law and her mother-in-law that's weird kind of yeah you know, it's like so, like i gotta get my mind around all that um but but it's it's not a, it's not a mer it's not a marital commitment at least in ruth chapter one it's the language of child to parent it's the language of daughter to mother it's the language of son to father that's that's what we're praying 
for with our children, which we're parenting them in faith that God's doing that. Right? And w- w- what's the end result? Well, your people are my people, our family unit. Um, wherever you go, I'm going to go in the way in which you've led, and your God is going to be my God. That's the, that's the symbol crash of the triad. Your God's my God. Your commitment to the God of Israel is my commitment to the God of Israel. Your commitment to the gospel of Jesus Christ that we say every week in a liturgical setting through the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed and the hearing of the Word and the celebration of the sacrament, all that stuff, Mom and Dad, that you dragged us to all the time, at some point in time we're praying, Oh Lord, let it take hold. Your God is my God. Um, so we see this sort of uh, sense of the ways in which these children, as a heritage of the Lord, our, our job as parents, like I kind of, and there's so many other things we're supposed to do. And I, and I feel this um, deeply. Some of you, I, and I can see faces in here, some of you are so much better at this. And so, you know, I, I, maybe, I won't say here, but there's one family at one point in time that I pulled aside to the dad and I said, listen, We've got three boys. You did pretty good. Um, can we just leave them with you and you give them back when they're 18? Like, oh, we'll take that plan. Um, so there's so many things, uh, you know, just about how to handle money and how to change a tire and, you know, go get your oil changed. I mean, you know, it's sort of life stuff. And that's all very important. We're training them in wisdom. That's where the Proverbs and the wisdom literature comes into play. But at the core of our job description as parents by God's grace is to point them to the Lord. They're not our own. We come and we go. We're here and then we die, but they're here. There's a sense, by the way, in which the Old Testament speaks about um, the immortality of the saints of the Old Testament linked to the progeny of their children. You know, this is, we're carrying it on to the next generation. This is why there's, and I I don't want to cause people trouble here, but there's a kind of, think, philosophical, conservative instinct in the Bible to receive a tradition, to recalibrate it in its moment, and to pass it on to the next group. That's that, that's that sense of honoring and respecting that which comes before, what C.S. Lewis calls a, a leaning against chronological snobbery, where we've got it figured out now better than our parents. I mean, that's, that's the idea. The other verse that I wanted to leave with you is Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6, I, 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 I go back to this in my own mind with some regularity. Here, the, here the, 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 the tribes of Israel are on the plains of Moab, about to go back into, um, uh, the, promise, uh, go into the promised land. Moses doesn't get to go. So this is Moses' swan song. And he's giving him the law one more time. He's giving them the Ten Commandments. And then after he gives them the Ten Commandments... And he gives them the Shema, Hero Israel, the Lord of God, the Lord is one. He ends Deuteronomy 6 by saying, And when your children ask you, why is all this so important? What's the big deal about all this stuff? What's the answer that you give? The answer that you give is the story of our redemption. Because the story of our redemption, we were slaves in Egypt. We were, we were destitute and left to ourselves, but God redeemed us. Right. So this, this sort of claim here about um, repeating the narrative of redemption is the gospel antidote to self-love. It's the gospel antidote to turning inward to define the self. 
It's a recognition that we are defined primarily in terms of that which is external to us, that which is outside of us, the story and the powerful proclamation of the gospel. That's why we've got to come to church a lot. We come to church in a weekly rhythmic pattern because, again, we get reoriented to that story. When When your children ask you, why is all this so important? The answer to them is because Christ redeemed you. Because he's claimed you in the waters of your baptism, which you don't even remember, but we do. We were there when you got wet, shook your head and cried and entered into the church resistantly. We saw it. But that was God reaching down from heaven to grab you and to claim you as his own. You're his. Remember your baptism. That's who you are. And your baptism is a story that links you into the redemptive work of Christ. Put your faith into that. Live into the truth of your baptism. Let that be what defines your identity. Because the world is screaming out at you from all kinds of quarters with such beautiful and sonorous sounds to be something other to let your identity be defined in other primary and basic terms. And yet here comes the gospel again to say, you must define yourself primarily in terms of Christ. It's not I that lives, Paul says, it's Christ living in me. We, but let's just come clean here. We don't do this by natural instinct. We do this by the gift of the Holy Spirit, bringing us again uh, to repentance, okay? Now, uh, okay. Thou shalt not kill. All right. It's interesting, isn't it, that you move here um, from family first. Uh, honor your father and your mother. It's non-abstract. It's concrete. It's this personal sphere of our relations. And then you move into this more abstract call to respect all of life. That life emanates from God And that the taking of life is the taking of God's soul ownership. God is the one who gives life. God is the one who takes life. It's his. And think about the powerful reality um, of uh, the, the description of God throughout the Bible as the God of the living. Adam and Eve were made for immortality they were made for life it's sin and its consequences that bring death in the world i mean sin and death are flip sides of the same coin they always go to the same family reunion together where sin is death is present death is not how it's supposed to be Humans were made for a life lived in relationship and the fullness of that relationship with God. So you move from the celebration of life in the household to this celebration of life as an abstract principle that Christians enter into, recognizing that that's God's. Kind of reminds me, I read this, uh, I can't remember where I read it, but um, for those of you who uh, have either seen a BBC version or read Charles Dickens' Bleak House, um, you remember Mrs. Jellybee? Oh, man. So here's Miss Jellybee. Great Dickinsonian character. Um, she's large. She's busy. She's got a ton of kids that she cares not a lick for her kids, right? She's not even interested in them. Why? Because she's solving the world's problems. 
Miss Jellyby's solving all the world's problems while her own kids are going to pot. I mean, I think this is, and we see, and Dickens portrays that as a, as a big farce, right? That's the ordering. We, look, we live within the reality of those relations that are closest to us, and then that is the platform from which we move toward the world at large in our care and our concern um, about life. God is the source of life. The realm of the living um, is His and His alone. Um, so the, 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 the command to not take life, I think, um, has a negative side, don't take life, don't murder. And then a positive side as well, which we think of in terms of the nurturing of life and the conditions that are best for human flourishing. Um, this, this is where we're called to live into the earthly city and to genuinely care about our neighbors, especially those in more, in more unfortunate situations and their own humanity so in other words it's not just a negative thing don't kill there's a positive thing too about what we might call as a culture of life and life in the in the bible is linked to the body this is crucial and this this is a moment of um there's a, we're we're in a moment right now where modernity tends to separate our personhood our selfhood from our bodies. Our bodies can become instruments, they become malleable for our own personhood and identity. We see this in so many of the public conversations today around the hot topics that seem to be on the front news every day. So we see this sort of linking of the body becoming detached from my personhood, so that the body becomes an instrument for my own individual autonomy. And I'll just let you know that that's not a biblical conception of freedom. For freedom, Paul says, Christ has set you free. Wonderful. What does that mean? That means now, love your neighbor. Galatians chapter 6. Bear one another's burdens. And when you bear one another's burdens, you so fulfill the law of Jesus Christ. This, of course, takes us into the topic of abortion, which is so central to public conversation right now. Um, an understanding of uh, life and life itself stemming from God. We lose our sense of our lives and our bodies. Um, Psalm 139, for example, uh, says this, and this is well worth thinking about. And I know there's all kinds of challenges with this issue. But I will encourage you, just as you think about this from a Christian theological perspective, not to think about abortion from the periphery of the challenging issues related to that, but to, but to begin from the center. And that is a recognition of life stemming from God and within God's own oversight and control. Um, and also the distinction of our, of, of our bodies from our individual personhood. These, all these things are very much a part of the ecosystem of our, of our world right now. Psalm 139, Lord, you have searched me and you have known me. You know when I sit down and when I get up, you understand my thoughts from far away. You scrutinize my path and my lying down. You're acquainted with all my ways. Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I go into hell, you are there. 
And then this is what he says in verse 13, the, the psalmist, For you created my innermost parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I'll give thanks to you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully formed in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my formless substance, and in your book were written all the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. How precious are your thoughts for me, O God. We recognize, don't we, that a a culture that begins to dismiss, and we are in, I mentioned this in the sermon that I just preached in 9 o'clock, we're in a moment on the far side of the 20th century, which had so much of its ruminations beginning in the 19th century. Think figures like Friedrich Nietzsche, Alfred Schopenhauer giving rise to Freud, and, and so, so many of these, uh, the, the existentialist crisis, that then this, this belief in progress, um, and, and this worshiping at the idol of progress, such that our technologies might in time uh, be able to overcome the limitations of our mortality. Um, Now, of course, we've got two massive problems in the 20th century with that deep belief in, and by the way, we would have all been wrapped up in that in the late 19th century. Um, World War I and World War II, massive curveballs, you know, thrown at this sort of belief in ultimate progress and the triumph of technology, because what we saw in World War I and World War II was technology used at its most destructive end. I mean, th- this, is, this is the thing about, the, the, and I, I know you feel the tension of this, the world in which we live, where technologies can be used for such good and they can be used for such evil as well. Um, I mean, your tech, the phone that your kid carries around make, gives you, a, as a parent, a sense of safety, being able to know where they are, and God help us to know what our kids are doing on their phones, right? I mean, it's like that's the, these are the tensions that I think we live in as we worship at the, at the God of Molech with our technologies. It's the belief in all of this. Um, and so we're, we're in this sort of sense of where, the, where the, the dismissal of the reality of God, God becomes unnecessary for human culture. The flip side of that as well is, is the embracing of a culture of death. When God goes, humanity goes. We can't make sense of our senseless selves apart from the reality of God. And then we're left to our own best resources to make sense of what it means to be. And welcome to our moment. It is fragmented across the Western world. This is why I'm prayerful that this is a moment of revival in the West. I mean, people have kind of come to the, I mean, think about the great promises of modernity. And here we are, and it's like we're, we're more fractured than ever. Things are coming apart at the seam. Progress, whose ultimate goal is the dismissal of the transcendent, it's not worked out. Well, where do we go? Or, dear God, bring your spirit among us. Let us see Christ again. So in terms of, of course, abortion and this sort of culture of life, we need to be careful because our tendency as humans, especially when we look at the 20th century, is to dehumanize before we destroy we're going to dehumanize before we destroy. Um, the Nazis were masters at this with the Jews. They de- and this is where language becomes so important. Become attuned to listening to the way in which people deploy language. 
Once the Jews are not full, full persons, then they can be dispensed with. I'm not really dealing with humanity anymore. Think about the horrible consequences of racism in the South. Once you dehumanize the African-American, you can dispense with them or use them at your will, at your leisure, whether that means for their, for their productivity or their death. And this is very similar to what happens with the child in the womb. We dehumanize it. We use language to, to, to distinguish or make a distinction between that child in the womb and a human being, knowing that even at conception, all the properties chromosomally and from the DNA perspective are there for full humanity. And we read from Psalm 139 that he's orchestrating all of that for the future. I thought about this even in relation several years ago, um, and I want to be sensitive to this. Several years ago, in terms of the way in which we talk, we use the language of miscarriage. Um, that's a, and again, that's that is such a vulnerable and tender thing to think about a woman that loses a child um, while she is pregnant at whatever stage that is. It's but but isn't that a little anodyne? Uh, does it hit me uh, miscarriage. I mean, the, the ways in which I think we want to talk about that, however you deal with this fam- familiarly and personally, is death. That's a life that's gone. That's a life that had all the potentiality of a full being that's not here anymore. It's gone. And, and of course, we're not attached to it personally like we are with our grown children, but all of the potentiality for life was there. It's the deep, deep grief and loss. Now, this is the kind of culture of, we need to be careful about how we use language because we want a culture of life because God is the God of the living. So Lord, the Lord give us wisdom as we navigate these things to give us courage as Christians to embrace this life and to enter into this mode of being that loves God and loves our neighbor uh, as we embrace uh, life. Now, <laughs> so much more we need to say, and you're really quiet. Um, but we'll come back to this next week. Okay, so I'll put the car in reverse. Um, you bring your questions. I'll fill up the time so that you can't ask them. Okay. <laughs> Lord Jesus, I, th- I thank you for our time together. Um, you told us that if we bear the name of Christ and that we enter into the world, that we should expect to be different. Lord, let it not be in ways that are pugnacious and unnecessarily offensive. But Lord, do let it be in ways that are courageous and hopeful. That Lord, we can speak in, the, in a culture that seems to be celebrating death and the, and the diminishment of the body. And our young people that are so confused right now because of the way in which public discourse has shaped so much of how they view themselves. Lord, forgive us and Help us as the church to be a place that's a respite, a clear, cool voice, Lord, drawing men and women to the truth that you, O God, are the God of the living. You're not here to put up your hand. You're here to invite us into a true mode of what it means to be blessed. Um, Give us that grace, O Lord. Give us that movement, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you will join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.